Welcome to episode 5 of the podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. My name is Matt, and joining me on today's cast is my co-host, Nonsensical Dan. Hello. And Nonsensical Tiffany. Hey. Thank you guys for joining us again, or if this is your first time, welcome. Uh, We wanted to start off with a little reminder that you can always reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for the League of Nonsensical Gamers, or shoot us an email at podcast at nonsensicalgamers.com. Now, for today's show, we're going to be getting into a little bit of news and Kickstarter Spotlight, and then we have a discussion topic today, the role of the reviewer. But before we get into all of that, let's go ahead and start out with a little bit about what we've been playing. So, Dan, what have you been up to? Uh, not too much. It's been a quiet week. I had a re- uh, wedding last weekend uh, out of town, so I didn't get to do our normal game group. But I did get a chance to get in a game of Shinobi Clans, which is a new release from post-human studios uh, this game came out at gen con uh, in limited pre-release and then has since hit retailers i believe in the last month or so uh, you'll you may know it as the really really good looking game about ninjas um, it's a beautiful game the art style is a like i guess you would call it like a water paint sort of style with all the different ninjas and uh, weapons and all kinds of things it's it's really good looking i would have definitely paid the money just to have the cards um the gameplay itself is also pretty interesting uh it's quite random um what i like to refer to it as is kind of like cheaty mages with this uh, the seje kanai uh card game it's cheaty mages on steroids uh in a way it's similar in that you're putting out uh cards in the middle of the table which in this instance are targets and then you are trying to influence whether or not those targets are uh, defended or assassinated. So again, similar to Cheaty Mages for those who haven't played, um, there's the monsters in the arena and you're trying to influence them as wizards on who will win and you get bet money based on that. So um, with Shinobi Clans, um, it's for three to five players and you start off with a draft, which is kind of cool. Um, each player will get up to 10 cards per round in their hand. And then you take turns playing these cards face down in stacks on top of the different targets. Um, At the end of the round, once everyone's either passed or played all of their cards, it's up to you how you want to do that. Um, The cards are then revealed in order from top of the stack to bottom and assigned to either the defense or the assassination of that target. So there's there's a little bit of guesswork in that you're trying to determine what your other players are going after as far as their targets and then trying to play cards in the stacks accordingly. And then you can bluff, you know, so that maybe your target doesn't you know, get assassinated, things like that. It's, it's really cool. It's really chaotic, that last reveal. And um, I really enjoyed it. I know, Matt, you had a chance to play with me. What'd you think? Yeah, I liked it. Um, it really is kind of chaotic and random. Now, we played with five people, which... With five people, you've got these stacks of cards that are resolving, and everyone gets a hand of 10 cards per round. So you've got upwards of like 20, 30 cards with a five-player game out on these stacks. So it's a lot to try to decipher and kind of work through. Um, 
but I did like it, and the art is fantastic. It's uh, I ran into the artist at Baltimore Comic Con and actually paid like twenty bucks for fifteen or twenty bucks for one of her prints. So uh, could have bought the whole game for that, but I really do like the art. Um, it's a great looking game, and if you like kind of chaotic random card games, um, this might be one to check out. It really is fun, but I do think that in terms of strategy, it's kind of hard to plan. Now I will I will counter with um, we played a three player game and you weren't involved in this but at the lower player count it actually was a little bit more strategic and, and tactical because it was it was kind of easier there's less targets and it was it was more manageable as far as kind of interpreting what your opponents were trying to do and what their hidden goals were so if you're looking for that strategic kind of um, game the lower player count. If you just want that chaotic kind of let's see what happens, um, definitely go with the four or five player game. Tiff, I know you bought this one, didn't you? I bought it. I I opened it, but that's as far as I've gotten. Well, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah, everybody in my group looked interested in it because it is pretty, but I haven't learned the rules yet, so I, I kind of get got to get on top it's of it. It's a that, real so. easy rule set. Um, it's probably like four pages. A bulk of that rule book is actually a full kind of turn example, which is helpful as well. So it's it's fairly easy. You should pick it up quickly. Great. Have you been playing anything, Tiff? Uh, yeah, I finally got a chance to play uh, Dead of Winter, which was Plaid Hat's huge Gen Con release and had all the hype about being like the world's best zombie game that's not actually about zombies. So um, I just stopped down at the game store and they were teaching it and we played a five player game of it and it had a lot of interesting things going on. I liked the crisis and how you have, you have to deal with this crisis. So everybody's contributing cards, but they're secret. So they could be helping or hurting the group. And I felt, thought that was really interesting, kind of a la Battlestar Galactica, but, um, I don't know, a little bit. I think it was just too hyped up for me by everybody. Uh, so I was a little bit disappointed. We had no betrayer also, so that was kind of a bummer. See, and I think that that's probably the worst part about the game is that you get those games with no betrayers. And really, the betrayer is what keeps it interesting and keeps it like that psychological, social game. Like, that's the element that you're looking for. Um, otherwise, it's just generic survival co-op, which is still fun. But that betrayer element, uh, the risk of there being a betrayer, um, is pretty cool. But the, yeah. but the betrayer is not, you know, you don't know if you have one or not. So you still have that psychological element, I think, of why is he doing that or, you know, things like that. Yeah, but so, and the, I guess the point is that you have your personal goals and those are supposed to conflict with the colony goal, the overall objective. And that's supposed to... Um, when somebody's doing something weird, you don't know, okay, are they doing that because they're the betrayer or because they have a personal goal that conflicts? So I guess that's supposed to be there in every game. But what I've found is that if you aren't the betrayer, you usually don't have to act too much like a betrayer. It doesn't force you enough to act like one to really mix it up. So you can almost kind of get the feel like this person's playing pretty straight and narrow um, and that they're probably not the betrayer. But I don't know. That's not to say that somebody can't feign that. Yeah, I felt like everybody that I played with, I mean, it hurts kind of that everybody I was playing with I barely knew. 
So it's hard to know what people's tells are, and they I can't tell if they look like they were lying or not. Uh, but my goal was, my secret objective was to have the main objective complete and three characters be eliminated from the game. So it is kind of like shady. I did kill the stunt dog Sparky. at one point. <laughs> and but and it looked suspicious, but it it didn't look no one suspected me of having of being the betrayer. The only person we exiled was just like a random wild card guy who started doing suspicious stuff for no reason. Like at the end of the game we asked him, "Well, why did you do that?" cuz we had a crisis where we had to put barricades up on every location. And um, right before that was about to come up, he didn't place the last barricade on the last location and instead went to a location and started making a whole bunch of noise to attract zombies. So it didn't make any sense, so we exiled him. But turns out he was just a regular guy. Just being a crazy person. A regular noisy dude. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. I'll definitely try it again. I just, it wasn't like earth shattering for me. Having a betrayer and having players that you know um, definitely mixes up the game. I've played it a bunch of times and have really enjoyed it every time I've played, but we've always had a betrayer and, you know, it's always been with my friends and my local game group. Um, so it's a really nice, like, game with a nice social element um, as opposed to, like, a social game that has a little bit of game attached to it. This really is, like, a full-fledged co-op game that's fun in itself, but then it's got that psychological element on top. So I like that. In the past couple weeks, or I guess the past week, I have been getting Nika to the table. So Nika is the latest Eagle Griffin Games release. And this was kickstarted a while back and hit uh, hit doorsteps for Kickstarter backers about a month or so ago. And uh, Biff actually picked this up. And it was kind of like a joint purchase between us because we were both really interested in it. So we've been getting that to the table. I think I've played it four or five times. Uh, but this past week, I actually got in my first four-player game of it, which was cool. So this game is like an abstract strategy game where um, all you're trying to do is get one of your pieces from one side of the board to the other side of the board. Um, but it's got this really unique uh, mechanic for move, moving your troops. So um, basically, individual units, when they're all facing the same direction, can form phalanxes or groups of soldiers. Um and what you're doing is strategically trying to manipulate, like, moving large amounts of units across the board in phalanxes and, and then choosing the opportune time to kind of break one off to try to, to win the endgame condition. Um, so it's really interesting, and we've been having a lot of fun with it with four players. Um, everyone seemed to enjoy it. We, I taught it in under five minutes, and, you know, we played the game in a half hour, 45 minutes, so... Um, we're having a really good time with it, and I really like kind of this clean, the clean lines and the look of the game. I think it's really kind of slick looking. So that's what I've been up to. Yeah, I thought that game looked like I like the graphic design on it, but I'm just not at all interested in abstract games these days. Yeah, if you, if you don't do abstract, then this game probably isn't going to do it for you. Now, I, I do think it's fun, and it's definitely unique. So even if you don't like abstract, you might be able to sit down and kind of appreciate it for what it is, but... You know, this is abstract at its heart, and it's only going to hit your table if you're into that kind of game. So that's all really, um, that's all that I've really been playing. But Dan, uh, what in the world is Madam Ching? So Madam Ching is a release from Bruno Cathala and Ludovic Montblanc and some other French guy that I apologize, I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, it's 
I believe it came out the spring, at least in the U.S. It came out in the spring of this year, and it's a game about piracy. Um, Madam Ching being a famous Chinese pirate, I believe, in the olden days. But uh, Tiffany had a chance to play this too. It was kind of odd that we both played this Thursday night within like 15 minutes minutes of each other without even knowing. So I still don't really know how to play. So I'm going to turn it over to her to explain the rules. Okay. So in a lot of ways, Madam Ching is kind of just a point-to-point movement game where you're trying to get from the left side of the board to the right side of the board. And the farther you get to the right side, the more points you get. The way you do this is by simultaneously revealing cards. And the cards are numbered, I think, from 1 to 60. And there are five different colors of them. So when you start your voyage, you play down a card and you move. The next time you play down a card, and if it's the same color, you move straight across the grid. If it's a different color, you move diagonally across the grid. So you have to kind of balance, you have to combine those two things to get as far as you can because um, the further over into the right bottom corner you get, the more points and extra cards and things you can earn. Uh, There are also encounter cards that you can pick up that add, take that, and um, different special actions that you can do if you cross certain lines on the board. So part of the strategy might be going through this one particular area to get those cards and then changing your direction to get farther to get points. The game ends when all the mission tiles are gone or if you've collected the special, there are special skills cards, and if you collect all four of those, it also ends. Can we first stop and take a break and talk about how much... I laughed every time when the rules were being explained. It said, place your junk in this space. I don't know. I guess it's my maturity level. No, it's not. I immediately tweeted about my junk. My junk was on full display this whole game. And I was just dropping my junk off in random squares throughout the Caribbean. And it was... I was cracking up the whole time. Just dragging my junk all over the board, you know? I wonder if that was something they, like, when they trans... I mean, because the rule books translate into, like, four or five languages. It's a thick rule book. It kind of intimidated me at first. Right. Well, and everybody's French, right? Yeah, I wonder if when it was interpreted that they kind of took that into consideration. Like, for those of us with the maturity level of a 12-year-old schoolboy, junk is going to be pretty funny when you're placing it on things. But I don't know. Again, maybe maybe other people are just like, oh, that's stupid. But <laughs> I got a kick out of it. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. But I... <laughs> no, no, I felt the same way. The whole entire time was junk jokes. Yeah, part of the trouble with me, like when he was, they were explaining the game to me, was I just kept giggling and I missed so many rules. <laughs> yeah, well, I taught it, so that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> I that's why I just I'm like, okay, this is your junk. We're gonna call it a boat. So what do you guys think about it? It's a weird one. I don't know what I think about it, and I've played it three times now. I'm in the same boat. Yeah, I was driving home from the game store having played it, and I just, I don't know. it. Certain aspects of the game I really liked. Like, the movement was kind of cool, the whole sequencing of the numbers with the different colors, and that's how you moved. Um, it was also kind of random how you got those cards, so that was kind of annoying at times. But... The, the take that encounter cards, I don't know. Something about them just didn't stick for me. They were just, they were odd. They just stood out. 
um, from the rest of the game, which seemed kind of mechanically interesting, so to speak. But I don't know. I don't. I don't have an opinion right now. I need to play it again because I just don't know how I feel. Yeah. The first two times I played this, it was two player and you control two junks. So I thought the reason I liked it or I didn't really dig it as much was because I was controlling two, like I was playing as two players and that just feels weird. This was my first play with the full complement of four players and I found it more enjoyable, but I still felt like, you know, at least at the beginning of the game, you know, when you're collecting these cards to play down to move your boat, you do get to collect them like ticket to ride style out of a card line. So you have some choice in it, but the choices were really obvious, at least for the cards that I was drawing. So it felt kind of like the game was on rails, like I wasn't really making any interesting decisions. Yeah, I can agree with that. And the tiles aren't set up to where, like, you can always take a lower tile. than So if you get to 36 and the 19 tile is available, you can take the 19. But there's really, I, I would have liked it better if there were, like, interesting decisions to make. Like, maybe some of those tiles have weird benefits that might you might want to take a lower tile. Well, they know. did have the they did have the symbols for the set collection piece to get those skill cards. But other than that. There was just, it was kind of like, okay, this card looks cool. I'll take that one. Like, it just try to get as far as you can, take the highest tile, wash, rinse, repeat. Yeah. And it, I, I don't know how anyone ever get across the whole board. That just seemed near impossible. I got close, but it really took a, a nice sequence of cards, I, and I lucked into that, basically. We had someone do it in this game, uh, and this is my third game, so this is the first time it's happened, and you have to get cards out of the encounter deck, basically, to do it. Yeah, there's, there's a sailor... Because mathematically, it's impossible otherwise. Yeah, there's captain cards, or the sailor card, whatever they're called. They're helpful. Yeah. Okay. So that's Madam Ching. We don't know what we feel. Tiff, you also got in some games of Sheriff of Nottingham since we've done our review of it yeah. and you've played with the right rules. Yeah, it's way better with the right <laughs> r- rules turned out. <laughs> we had our most raucous game of it. Um, there was just one thing I was trying to do, especially was negotiate with the cards that were in my um, bag. And I hadn't done that before very much, like even after I knew that was a rule. And I think that really adds something interesting because it does bring out that possibility of having a non-binding agreement. And I think that adds to the theme of the game and makes it feel more realistic. So there was a lot of shouting and, and cursing. It was fun that way. Nice. So it's still good. You're still enjoying it. Yeah, I like it. I'll keep it. I actually am going to have two copies of it soon because I kind of maybe ordered that German version with the tins. That's about, trading things on the border of Mexico. You trading hard-ons on the border. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Human trafficking on the border. People smoke. No, it's like it's tequila and like maracas, stuff like that. Yeah, for the regular goods, but the contraband is like human body parts and cocaine and <laughs> living bodies. <laughs> it's got Vin tins. diesel in high performance race cars. Oh, I wish it did have oh, yes. <laughs> There will be souped up Honda Civic cards for you to smuggle. Nice. Well, you'll have to throw some pics up on the Facebook and the Twitter for that so that we can see what this ridiculous game looks like. 
I will do it as soon as it gets Excellent. here. All right. Well, I think that's what we've been playing, even for uh, a bit of a slow week. We got in some good games. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we will do the news and Kickstarter spotlights. All right, so now we're going to get into some news and some Kickstarter spotlights. So first up, we have a little bit to talk about in regards to Tabletop Season 3. So floating around the internet uh, have been some of the confirmed games for Tabletop Season 3, which is Will Wheaton's web series, um, which is primarily geared towards um, kind of entry-level games, newer gamers, um, and doing kind of interesting and fun playthroughs that also combine with rules explanations. So some of the games that we have confirmed are Sushi Go, Roll For It, Takedo, Pairs, which is a special backer-only episode, Libertalia, Five Tribes, Stone Age, Sheriff of Nottingham, Concept, and Forbidden Desert. And I just wanted to kind of pose the question about what you guys thought about this list. You know, do they fit? Are there any standouts? What are your thoughts? You know, the list is is cool. There's a couple on here that um, I'm excited to see. Well, I'm never really excited to see Will Wheaton, but I will keep that, those thoughts to myself. Really? You didn't keep it to yourself, though. I just though. kept it at that. How about that? All right. <laughs> but, um, yeah, some of these, I think these all kind of fit what they're looking to do with tabletop as far as the kind of entry-level or accessible games for both casual family younger gamers as well as you know your your hardcore guys i guess for some of these um the ones i'm probably most looking forward to would be libertalia i think that will go i think that'll be an interesting one to watch especially if they get a nice group of um you know comedians or people with personalities (laughs) around that table um which they're usually pretty good about um the one that sticks out for me uh, as far as the list is concerned, is Five Tribes. Again, I've only played this once, but in looking through his criteria for how he selects games, um, it just this one just stands out. He talks about rules explanations and ease of learning, and I just and not to mention just for the video production of this game, it's such a busy game. There's so much going on. Um, throughout the tiles, on the side of the board. It just, I don't know. This one just sticks out to me as something I'm interested to see how they can pull this off. Um, the rules are fairly simple, but uh, again, it's a its a longer game, and it's also, like I said, it, it takes up a lot of table space. Yeah, I felt the same way when I read that blog, and he did mention somewhere in there about the difficulty they'll have with the way the game looks on the table. Just that it's it's got really nice tiles, but you have all of these multicolored meeples everywhere. And I'm just wondering, I mean, I guess they'll be able to fast forward through everybody thinking about where they're going to move. But that game just has a lot of staring at a board. Yeah, they're going to have to cut probably about an hour worth of people just going, uh... Unless he's rounded up maybe a, a group of folks to play it that have played it before. That might help it. <laughs> but Well, they do play it before they record that's true. it. I think they, they play it at least once. Yeah, I thought that one was the odd one. I was happy to see Stone Age on there. Seems like a good fit. 
Yeah, I love that game. So I'm glad it's going to see the light of day as far as you know the, the audience that Tabletop draws. I'll be excited to see Concept. Um, he's got like a good network of pretty creative people, and I think that Concept really rewards having some creative players. Um, so that could be cool to watch. I don't know. See if they keep score. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> yeah. They will. They'll have that, to, right? Yeah, that's you how can't... the game's played. I mean, the, quote, game is played, yes. Yeah. So So that's Tabletop Season 3. Um, they have started filming, so we can look forward to some of those episodes in the future. So one of the other things in the news these days, uh, Stonemeyer Games' charity auction just wrapped up this past week. They had nine deluxe editions of Euphoria with a special insert and all the fancy uh, fixins, the realistic resources that they uh, produce. Those were all up for grabs, and they were each sponsored. Each individual game was sponsored by one of the, the podcasts that he enjoyed and reached out to. Um, so this has completed, and they raised over $2,800 uh, for their respective charities. And they had like a little competition going, and the Secret Cabal Gaming Podcast, one of the Dice Tower's uh, popular gaming podcasts, actually took the win. I think they had around $400 um, for Make-A-Wish International. So that was just a little tidbit. Um, it's always nice to see charity surrounding the board gaming community because I do think that um, this community is kind of fantastic at rallying to support those in need. So that was a pretty cool thing. I'm just glad they didn't give the charities copies of Euphoria. It's probably better that they got the money because at least they can do something with it. <laughs> Haters going to hate. What? What? Well, look at, but see, there's proof positive right there. Look at all that money they earned with just nine copies of Euphoria. Yeah, but like Matt said, this is a very giving community. I think you could have had, you know, nine copies of Deluxe Poo, and it probably would have raised a, a decent chunk of money. I just think it's just the nature of the people in this this hobby, which is awesome. Well, you can think that. It's an awesome game, but we'll we'll yes. debate that. On that note, day. we're going to move on from this news topic before a fight breaks out. Euboria. And oh, we've been waiting me. all episode to say that. <laughs> I'll so, say it again. Euboria. And I'll say it again. You're dead to me. Wow. Dan, how about you tell us about Carcassonne <laughs> 2.0? So, Carcassonne. One of my favorite games. But I think we can all agree it's pretty dated looking. I think this came out like maybe early, early 2000s, something like that. Um, and it looks like it, you know, compared to some of the art that comes out today. This one, and, and it's also a Euro, so that explains part of it. But uh, Z-Man recently announced that Carcassonne 2.0 is coming out. And this is going to have a whole new art style to it, which I think is great. Um, I've really enjoyed what they've done with some of the more recent versions of Carcassonne, uh, well, iterations of Carcassonne, I should say. The uh, South Seas, um, they've got the new Gold Rush coming out. They also had the Winter Edition. All those had really nice art, um, really cool looking. So it'll be nice to see the the base game, the mothership, uh, get, get the facelift that it deserves. Um, and unlike what they did with Pandemic which is screw up, um, these tiles will be compatible with all of the other modules and expansions that have come out for Carcassonne. So you don't have to go out and buy an upgrade kit or anything like that, uh, similar to what you had to do for Pandemic, where the card backs just didn't match, which I never understood, but 
you know, I'm not a publisher. So, um, I don't yeah. think this game really needs it. I'm excited for it, and I'm sure you guys will pick it up. But it's Carcassonne, and the old-style art always seemed to fit the theme of it. You're building little castles on the French countryside. I thought it looked quaint. It looked like quintessential Euro to me. It's got meeples. It's got kind of bland, boring artwork. This is what a Euro is in my mind. But what would a publisher be if they couldn't milk more money out of us? Well, out of you. (laughs) I'm sure I won't be the only one buying Carcassonne 2.0. No, not at all. It is cool to see. But like I said, you know, I think it's okay. I really like the winter one. If you played the winter edition, that one was awesome. It just looked really cool. I love that too. Yeah, little reindeer and stuff throughout it. Foxes and just... Yeah, just little kind of, I don't want to say Easter eggs because they were there and present, but you know, little just detailed touches that were really cool. Yeah. Well, there's a couple other games getting a, a facelift here now. One of them is Merchants and Marauders with their Seas of Glory expansion. Um, and that's got 11 new module, well, it's modular expansions, and there's 11 of them in the box. Is that correct? Yep. There's 11 new modules. They're all going to be interchangeable with the base game, which recently got a reprinting after being uh, out of print for for a little while. I'm not sure how long it was officially, but um, yeah, it's cool. That's that's one game I really like um, as far as the pirate genre is concerned. Um, it's a long game for us, but I think... You know, I, I don't know much about these modules. I'm hoping it freshens it up a bit because I would I would like to pick it up. I traded my original Merchants Marauders for a out of print Airlines Europe at the time, but if if this uh, expansion looks interesting, I may wind up picking it back up. And one of the other games getting some really cool upgrades is Firefly, the board game, which we actually own the base set of and a couple of the expansions. Um, you know, I'd love to get that back to the table some more, but. I'm definitely going to want to see these things on the table. They've got the new resin ships. Tiffany, have you seen these? Yeah, I was looking at them. Pretty. If I was into painting, I'd be a lot more excited about it, but they look awesome. I'll probably still end up picking them up. Yeah, we need to find the guy who painted these for the their ad, their picture, um, because they look fantastic. I'll send my set to you and you can paint them. How about that? You, you don't want that. Don't want that. <laughs> One, because you might not get them back. And two, if they do come back, you're not going to be happy. They'll probably be all red. Oh. You remember that part in Firefly <laughs> where they cover the Firefly or they cover Firefly <laughs> with all the reaver junk? It might yes. look a little bit like that. Okay, just never thematic, mind. but. <laughs> it was just an idea that I had. I threw out all my paints, so I, I don't know if I should get this or not, but I want to get it because I love Firefly. I was drooling over the blue sun expansion at my game store yesterday These are the kind of ships that you might be able to do like a quick base coat and like a dip on they might still look pretty good or there's only six of them it probably wouldn't be too expensive to send them off to a professional person and That's have true. them done if you really wanted them to yeah. look good um they seem pretty well detailed i mean they are ships so they're they're probably a little bit easier than you know things with faces yeah and these will hit the market january february First quarter? February 2015. Okay, cool. Let's go ahead and move into some Kickstarter spotlights. And the first project we have up is Dead Drop, which I'm going to let Dan go ahead and talk about. So Dead Drop is a new micro game from Crash Games um, and designer Jason Gutarski, who also did uh, Great Heartland Hauling Company, Fidelitas, and a few others, I think, Frog Flip. Um, This is a, like I said, a micro game. It's comprised of basically 13 cards, I believe it is, um, and some tokens. It's a very small package. 
Um, but there's a whole lot of game in there. Uh, we had a chance to check this out with Jason at Origins and really enjoyed it. It's a, it's a deduction game. So players are handed some cards. There's some cards face up in the table. And then ultimately there's a face down card, which is the dead drop. And it's through a couple of actions. It's up to you to kind of deduce what that card is in the middle. Um, so it's, like I said, without getting too in detail, it's it's really cool. The um, like I said, thirteen cards. The amount of game that you get is is phenomenal. And uh, one of the standout things about this campaign is definitely the artwork. Um, Adam McIver, the Coin Age uh, individual, <laughs> individual. You can the say the Coin, Coin Age guy. individual. <laughs> yeah, I just didn't want to, you know, say guy. You could say the designer of Coin Age. That would be too smart, and right now I'm not feeling smart. Um, I'm oh, kidding. Sad. No, it's cool. But um, he kind of gathered a group of artists together. Because it's only a 13-card mini game. they were able to come up with, I think, seven or eight different sets of cards. You've got the base set, which is like spies. You've got a monster deck, a Viking deck. I believe there's also the outlaws, and there's some strange bird and kids deck and then you've got a, a really cool rogue and robot deck so um what's neat is um whereas for instance something like pairs where you you pledged and you selected the deck you want if this campaign hits various stretch goals they're going to throw in the different decks um that were reached as part of your base pledge so you know if this gets to where it needs to go which right now it's kind of struggling and that's sad to me but if it gets there, you could have upwards of eight different decks come in this project, which would be so cool because the art, like I said, is, it's phenomenal. I really enjoy it. So if you haven't t- taken a look at it, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, the base price, I believe, is $12 um, for the, the base package. They also have a deluxe version, which has some like wooden tokens for scorekeeping, etc. And that goes for $22. But like I said... Uh, for 12 bucks, the amount of game you're getting in there, it's, it's a lot of fun. I actually think I enjoyed it more than I enjoy a, a game like Love Letter. And, and that's that's high praise, in my opinion. I played it at Origins you with think? Jason. Um, I'm not really great at deduction, but I think it's like a good game for me to train <laughs> with that. Like I'll, I'll get better if I play this game a few more million times. So I'm going to back it. Um, I hope they get... I think they'll fund because they're already they're already close to ten thousand of twenty two thousand. But I don't know if they'll get to all those wonderful, awesome decks. I really want yeah. that Viking deck. Maybe maybe Patrick so. will cave and throw some in to entice people. But um, yeah, I really hope this one funds. Uh, so Tiffany, I'm going to go to you first for this next project because I know you and I are kind of the resident one night werewolf players. Um, so the Daybreak expansion is on Kickstarter for like another two weeks. So tell me a little bit about it. Daybreak adds some new roles to the game. 13, it says on the Kickstarter, maybe 14. So they've added some cool things like the Sentinel. He wakes up first and he can protect one player's roll card um, by placing a shield on it. They've got different kinds of wolves through there. So like an alpha wolf that wakes up with the other wolves but can change a player into a new werewolf. Um, they've got the apprentice seer that has seer like abilities, but they're kind of limited in that she can only look at one single card in the center. There are just all kinds of cool things. The prince can't be killed 
what? So they just have all kinds of really cool looking things. They're updating the app to add these different characters. And honestly, just from looking at all the different things that are going on here, this expansion might make it unplayable without the app. Yeah, that's probably true. There's also some of these cool artifacts in the game, which seem to um, add in different abilities and things like that. Yeah, so the artifacts are for this curator character, and they place a secret one on a player's roll card, and they can change that player's roll or hinder him in some way. So, like, I'm looking... The brand of the villager changes the player into a simple, regular villager. So whatever they've got going on, it changes it. I like the void of nothingness. Does absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah. But so, yeah, so that's for the new curator, um, adding in a new twist to the game. So that's pretty cool. The thing that I that I was drawn to were all the stretch goals. So they're doing all kinds of different stretch goals, including upgrades to the app, new roll cards, new artifacts. Um, female narration option, which has been unlocked, if you're really into that. Um, and some cool things. So it seems like they're kind of like digging to the bottom of the barrel in terms of different things that you can do. Um, the next goal that will be unlocked is gender-aligned narration. So female characters will be introduced by, the, by a female and male by a male. So that's kind of cool, I guess, if you're into that. <laughs> Mixes it up, right? Yeah, it's something. The next one is... <laughs> I think is a little bit weirder background sound cards moving around. So like you can drop that into all the other crickets background sound. It, it will be the sound of cards. Moving I actually around. appreciate that. Cause we are loud players. Like we, oh. we play this with um, a lot of our like lighter gamers. So including like my mom and my brother's girlfriend and my brother. Um, and they, I'm not saying that they're loud people, but like when we're all together playing like a six or eight person game of werewolf, we are kind of loud. So I try, we like bang on the table and stuff to disrupt and make more background noise. So I'm glad to see that they're adding more into the app. At what point do you just stop adding stretch goals? Never, apparently. Just let it rise. If you're Bezier, you you stop adding stretch goals after $100,000. Okay. But then it says more stretch goals to come. (laughs) So why not just... I don't know. I don't know. It just seems comes comes a point where it's just like let's just we've already got two thousand backers, eighty eight thousand dollars. Why do we have to keep adding more stretch goals? I think it's fun though. I mean, it's not like stretch them out a little bit. (laughs) I well, to be fair, this game is uh, going for this expansion is going for twenty five dollars, sixty dollars if you want a playmat. That's forty dollars. But how is it forty dollars for a playmat? Because it's an awesome playmat. Awesome playmat. with that. $40 so, for a playmat. Every time I see someone play on that playmat, I'm like, oh, I really want to get one of those. But it is a lot of money. No, if you read it correctly, it's actually a copy of Daybreak and the original One Night Werewolf. Is it? So it's Got only it. like a $10 playmat because they're both 25 I was going to say, bucks. we got custom playmats for $12 each. Yeah. There's no way I'm paying $40 for a, a so, silhouette of a wolf. But 25 bucks to pick up the game, 60 bucks plus a playmat if you want both of these games together, which is actually seems like a pretty decent deal. Um, but they've gotten, that's not that high of a price and they've gotten 87,000 bucks and they still have two weeks to go. So I say whatever they're adding in, they're not adding in like anything that's going to delay shipping times. They're adding in like app upgrades and things like that. So, oh, you can buy the playmat separately. It's $20. There you go. It's not that bad. So Tiffany's and I like the daybreak, daybreak playmat. 
There it is. Yes, I am. Excellent. Cool. All right, so that's One Night Werewolf uh, Daybreak expansion from Bezier Games. And the final thing we have on our Kickstarter spotlight is the Minton Games, which Tiffany will go ahead and give us a little talk about. Yeah, I've been working on a review of the Mint Tin games. Uh, they're by David Miller from subquark.com. And they're two little micro games. Their campaign has, um, they were already funded. They're just really quick playing games that you can play in 5, 10, 15 minutes. Um, but they actually have a little bit of meat to them. So they're perfect for like lunchtime or in between games or before everybody shows up. They're only two player games. So there's two of them. One is Minton Aliens, which I would say plays a lot like Jaipur. Uh, I like that game a lot, so I like this game a lot. And then Minton Pirates, which is a little bit more direct conflict. It's two sea captains trying to blow each other out of the water. These look cool. Yeah, they are. I'm really loving them. I've played a lot of Minton games over the past few weeks. And only 24 bucks to get the pair or 14 bucks to get one of them. Um, I like uh, on their Kickstarter site, it says Minton Pirates was born while waiting for a burrito. Yeah, well, and I what I think is really cool about it is they made an effort to source as many of the components as possible here in the U.S., and the whole game is being put together basically in the designer's dining room table and sent to you directly. Very cool. So, Handmade touch. Yeah. Interesting. It's charming. And, and like I said, they're really awesome games, so it's definitely worth the 24 bucks to get both of them. America. <laughs> Precisely. Yep. Well, very cool. So that's Minton Games and from David Miller. And that has that'll have a little under two weeks to go as well by the time you guys hear this cast. And it's already funded, so no worrying about whether or not you'll get your games. And it's from America, Dan. America. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so I think that's all the Kickstarter spotlights we have. Anything else floating around Kickstarter or in the news that we were interested in? All right, so on that note, we'll go ahead and take a break, and when we come back, we're going to get into our discussion topic, which is the role of the reviewer, and we'll tell you just what that means when we come back. Our last segment today is going to be a discussion topic about the role of the reviewer. So this segment arose from a small discussion that we had about prominent reviewers um, giving bad reviews and how popular figures in the community, no matter how much influence they may have, should be conducting their content production. So their reviews and their videos and things like that. So what this kind of turned into as we started talking about it was taking a hard look and reflecting on the nature of reviewers in the hobby their purpose, and then also getting a little too philosophical and ethical on the practice of game reviews. Um, So we're kind of in a unique place because we both consume board game media religiously, um, and also we produce content. So we make reviews and previews and things like that. So we really felt that this conversation was something worth chatting about, this topic. So where we want to start this discussion is actually to give some of our own perspective on kind of what we use reviews for and what we're looking for in a review. So, for instance, to kind of kick it off, I know that when I go on a BGG or I find a new game that I'm interested in, 
I will go and look for reviews. And that's mainly to inform kind of purchasing decisions, but also kind of just to see if I'm interested in the game. So some of it is just to kind of learn the theme and the background of the game. But also if that kind of hooks me, I'll start tearing through good and bad reviews to kind of see if it's is worth picking up um, or worth pre-ordering or, you know, depending on the state of the game. Um, at the same time, if I find a game that I really like, I'll often, after purchasing it, I'll often go and find reviews of the game for entertainment purposes. So, for instance, I just picked up Mage Wars and I actually went on and uh, looked for, you know, Crits Happen and Dice Tower and basically randos on BGG. I, I take in any content I can to kind of see what they think about the game and see if it kind of matches up with me. Now, I've already bought the game, so really I'm just doing this for fun. I'm not doing it for any other purpose at that point. Um, so what I rely on reviews for is pretty pretty vast. I kind of have a reason for looking at all kinds of reviews for a variety of different reasons. I, I do the same thing. I mean, I if there's not much information about a game out there and there's been an announcement, I'll go to Board Game Geek and look and see if anybody's done a review or um, I'll look at it as a way to justify a purchase. If I've already bought, bought a game, I'm like, well, I bought this and Joel Eddy says it's good, so I feel better about <laughs> buying it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. If I have a couple of people backing up my opinion, that, that makes me feel good. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll use it, like, if if I just follow a reviewer's YouTube channel, I'll see what they're reviewing and and investigate those games. So I use it as, like, a suggestions. Yeah, yeah. What to check out. I also do it if I like a reviewer, which we'll actually talk a little bit later about kind of what we like and don't like. But um, if I have a favored reviewer, I usually end up watching most of their reviews anyways, just because I enjoy the content. So that's another entertainment value kind of thing. Yeah, I look at mostly for informational purposes, um, as well as kind of suggestions on what I want to buy. Um, obviously, board games seem to be getting more and more expensive these days, so making informed choices based off of your likes, your dislikes, and and even whether or not you're going to be able to get to the table with you, you know your regular groups. Um, I think those play into it um, a lot, especially if you're not just in this for collection purposes. If you just you know, if, you know, money's tight, things like that, you really want to be informed. So I do that. I don't really do it so much for entertainment value, only because my time is kind of limited and I don't have the ability to sit down a lot and just read things for fun. Um, however, I do do that at work every once in a while when I get bored. But um, I, I will say, though, my biggest source of reviews is, for the most part, uh, people I know, not necessarily any mainstream reviewers or channels. Uh, I really take the opinion of my friends um, throughout the industry that I've kind of known to, you know, play games with at cons and just through our own reviews of their games and things like that. Just get a feel for who relates to me as far as my my tastes, and then I ask them a lot of times, "Hey, hey, have you played this game? You know, what what did you think of it?" And and those are the reviews I really take to heart because I know for a fact that these guys. Um, you know, line up with me and what I'm looking for. So I think it's it's two ways for me. I, I look at both the kind of produced media content from some of the bigger sites, and then I also take word of mouth from, from friends. Well, so in that same note now, you and Tiffany know more industry people than I do. So when I'm looking for reviews, I'm often using the well-known reviewers, like the big names out there. But then I also use... Um, some of the anonymous anonymous reviewers that I find on BGG. So 
I don't always, I can't always look for a name that I know um, when I'm looking for a review. Now, how does like knowing people in this industry like you guys do, how does that impact what you, where you go for your reviews and, and who you rely on? Well, I think when you know a reviewer, like you're going to be more familiar with their tastes. Like, especially if you sat down and played a game with that person and you've seen how they react at the table to certain types of games, it can clue you into to the, the, the things that they're saying in the review. So coming off of all that, what do you guys really look for in a review? We know why you use reviews, but what are you really looking for specifically? So I'm looking at, well, I guess I can start with the, the video versus written debate. Um, I lean more written, and I think that's just because of the ability to read at my own pace and kind of digest what they're saying within the review uh, more so than with a video. I, I like video for gameplay. Um, I like to see kind of how the flow of the mechanics and the turn structure um, plays out on video. That way I get that visual sense of the game. But as far as the opinion of what the reviewer thinks, I really I lean more towards written um, in that aspect of things because I think when people start talking to a video camera, um, sometimes some reviewers just they just go on and on and on and they get disjointed in their thought process and it just it almost becomes a ramble at some points. And I, I really like that in a written review, it's concise, it's to the point, it touches on you know a good written review touches on a lot of the the main things that I would like to see. So uh, that's that's how I stand in that aspect. What about you, Tiffany? Written versus video. Well, I don't read a ton of written re reviews. Um, I mean, I read those while I'm at work because I can't access videos and watch those at work. So I'll read a written review if I'm really like dying um, to know about a game and I, I have a little bit of time, I'll read a written review. Um, you're right about getting to the opinion part. I think it's easy to deal with a written review because even if the, the writer is rambling on about the rules or something that you're not really interested in, you can just scroll down and find the opinion part of it. Whereas with a video review, I mean, yeah, I guess you can just fast forward to the end, but you might miss some of that. It's easier to miss some of that through a video review. Yeah, yeah in a, a, I don't mean to cut you off, but in a video review, a lot of times, as they're explaining the game, sometimes they'll also give a little bit of opinion or color commentary throughout that. So, yes, you can skip forward, but like you said, you may miss something else that he doesn't bring up uh, you know, in his final thoughts or something along those lines, like a written review where you could just scroll through and look for keywords or whatever you're looking for. Right. So for I I do watch a lot of video reviews, but it's for gameplay and sometimes it helps me if I've been reading a rule book, it helps me solidify the rules in my brain to see it kind of played out and a lot of video reviews seem to have a bigger emphasis on going through the gameplay and going through the rules whereas written reviews seem more opinion oriented at least from my experience. Sure. So you guys mentioned a few different things kind of during that, and you you touched on rules overviews. You also talked about like scrolling down to see opinions. So um, I guess two different things, a two-parter that I would throw at you would be, how do you feel about what's included in a review? One, do you think that rules overviews should be in there? Because I know that's um, a debate that I often see is like, don't give me the rules, or yes, I want the rules. And then also, what do you, how do you feel about measurable ratings? Do you want like a rating system or do you just want like a try by pass or, you know, what are you guys looking for in terms of that when you look at reviews? I mean, 
most of the time, I don't want any kind of rules overview unless I'm specifically looking on how to learn uh, a game. I wish more reviewers would split up their videos into a game explanation video and a review opinion video. Um, there are a couple, or they'll put it in their like comments where it starts at this minute mark. I like that better because nine times out of ten, I've already read the rule book. I don't need to to hear the rules. I, I'm I'm torn on this. I, I think written reviews especially need some context. Um, I look to them for kind of a brief summary of the rules and then their opinion. Um, because a lot of times in a written review, you reference pieces of the game that without even just a brief kind of overview of how the game is played and some of the mechanics of the turn structure, things like that, that you may not understand the, the opinion right. of the author. So I think it's necessary to balance it. I don't know what the correct balance is, you know, 30, 70, 40, 60, 50, 50. I don't know. I think it just depends on the reviewer's style. Um, I don't like to read a huge drawn out rules explanation, but I'm different from you, Tiffany, in that I'm not always looking for the rule books um, all the time. I read a rule book for a game I'm really, really interested in, but a lot of times I look at written reviews especially um, and and then I guess video reviews too for that brief kind of paraphrasing of the rules that I can kind of get the, the feel of it for. What about you, Matt? So we're obviously coming from the perspective of kind of personal consumers, but I can't deny the fact that I also write reviews. So when I think about including rules interview overviews, um, this is something that we kind of ran into a talk about between us as a group because I was always all about keeping rules overviews in because I really feel like they provide a context for somebody reading a review and reading an opinion. And it always felt strange for me to write an opinion and write you know, a, a critical review without first telling people what the heck the game was about and what goes on. So before I critique this mechanic or this component, I need to tell you, I need to give you that base knowledge so that you know what I'm working with. But when you think about informed consumers like Tiffany who are going to reviews with some background knowledge, I can see how you'd want to skip over that completely. Well, and most reviews probably aren't for me, you know. I am really obsessed with board games and I spend a lot of my day researching them. So um, I, I understand why they're there. And it's not that I don't like a re re rules overview. I just don't like an in-depth explanation of the rules necessarily. I don't want to know how... I'm not usually getting on a review to learn exactly how to set up the game and how to play the game. Uh, an overview that gives me an idea of what the mechanics are and what's going on in the game, I appreciate for the context. Yeah, it's something that I struggle with when I do write. If you go back to like my first review of like Android Netrunner, my God, that thing is long. Um, but it's something that we've been trying to refine, me in particular, you know, to give concise rule overviews and really give the people what they need and not just the rule book regurgitated. I think I think a, a quick synopsis of a turn sequence and the win condition. I think those are good. I think those are good enough for me personally to kind of just get a feel for what I'm going to be doing and how I'm going to win this game. And then you can kind of critique it as you see fit. Yeah. So what do you guys think about ratings? What do you do you want a rating system? I only want a rating system if the author has kind of provided context on his ratings. Um, I think just saying, oh, this is a 7.5 out of 10 is kind of, you know, how do I know that reviewers, what he's looking for 
you know, what is a 7.5 to him? Is 7.5 the highest game he's ever reviewed? Or is it, you know, middle of the pack? I don't know. It's just, I don't. So you want a number with an explanation? Yes. Or, you know, for instance, on our site, like I know you and Smee have written blogs about how you look at reviews, kind of, for instance, and what your rating of a three star means to you. Mm -hmm. So things like that, that I can get your context and see how it aligns with me. And then I can take it from there. I I think it's very uh, subjective, I guess would be the word I want to say. Yeah. Tiff? Well, I think reviews are hard to quantify in that way. I definitely, when I had my blog going, I was putting reviews. I have a whole page on explaining how I rank a game from 1 to 10. Um, But because that's my own standard and those are my own priorities, like different reviewers are going to have different priorities. So a a straight-up number doesn't give you enough information. Um, I... As much as I, it pains me to say it, I kind of do like the BGG 1 through 10. Um, because they have an explanation for what a 1 means, what a 2 means, what a 3 means. And I use that. Yeah, but does everyone else use BGG's kind of standards for those? I mean... Probably not, yeah, but I'm just saying that I, when I put my number on there, it's because I've read their list of recommended yeah. ratings. So you know what you're getting into. I think there was a yeah. recent discussion. I guess it, maybe it was Twitter. Or no, it was, a, it was an article by uh, Grant Rodick, the guy who did uh, Farmageddon. He just had a blog post about how designers can utilize BGG's ratings. And he was talking about how like you basically throw out the 1s, 2s, and 3s, and the 10s. Because those are purely, not purely, but they are comprised mainly of emotions. Either I really, really hate this game and I want it to be known to the world, or I really, really love this game, but it's, does it deserve a 10? Who knows? I mean, there are a few 10 games out there, I would say, in my opinion. But, you know, a majority of the games probably fall between that 4 to 8, 4 to 9 range. And he talks about kind of how you can take that, dissect it, and improve upon your games, etc. It's a really good article if you haven't read it. It's over on his blog. But, um, yeah, I, I don't... BGG ratings for me, I, I, I tend to agree. I think they're purely subjective. I don't think anyone follows a set criteria or a set standard. I think it's just, oh, this is good. I like this one. Eight. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, I wish there was a set criteria that everybody was forced to follow. That would make me happy. But <laughs> Well, so... It... The buy, try, deny, you know, three-point scale works just fine, yeah. I'd say, for most. Well, I just wonder... Because this kind of gets into like objective versus subjective reviews. So you can never have a completely objective review. We've got emotion, we've got opinion, and they're all going to be subjective to some point. But would you favor something or would you trust something more that favors critical analysis? Are you cool with like, I don't like this game, gut feeling, super opinionated? Because this is a review. And I guess it harkens back to kind of what you use reviews for. But at the same time, you know, I'm. I'm just wondering preferences on like, do you want something that's super critical and thought out? Or do you want something that's a little more like I play games for fun and this game wasn't fun and that's my review. I, um, I don't know. I, it, this might sound box standard, but if you can substantiate your critical analysis or your gut feeling or your rating, I'm perfectly fine with that. I, and, it, and it makes sense. Um, I don't have to agree with it, but I understand where you're coming from why you're doing what you're doing and saying what you're saying. I think that's all important. 
I can tell you that I probably tend towards the critical analysis just because that's how I think of games and that's how I tend to review games when I'm think I like to think through each little part, the artwork, the rule book, the teachability, the gameplay, the playtime. I like to just break it all down into little chunks. Analysis is just it works for my brain. I'm not one usually to just react and say, "Oh, I hate this game." You know, even if I can substantiate why I don't like a game, I like to think about it more deeply and I like to analyze it like that. So when I look for reviewers or reviews, I'm looking for someone that's thinking the same way that I'm thinking. Yeah, that's fair. Um, and you touched on the the critical analysis or the deep analysis. I think for me, I like to see it almost like a movie review because I've read some reviews where they're part of their critical analysis is basically telling you how to play the game and what you know what strategies worked and what this I don't like that because that's that's part of gaming that I like is the part of gaming I like is discovering that on my own so I think it's it's a fine line of critical analysis versus spoiler in a way so uh, I mean for instance you have a few acres of snow I mean that that gets a bad rap because somebody wrote a review which critically analyzed the different strategies and one of them is broken so you know reading that it kind of it takes some of the fun away from it, you know, without discovering that on your own. So I, I don't right. know if I'm making sense, but I like the way movie reviews do it because they don't spoil the plot. They give you just enough to kind of feel for if you're going to like this movie, some of the good parts, some of the bad parts, but they don't spoil the movie experience for you. Oh, I agree. I don't read strategy articles if I can help it. And if that's peppered into a review, I might stop reading it or watching it. So I don't want to know like the, the optimal strategies for a game in a review, but some people do. Yeah. So what do you think, Matt? In terms of critical analysis versus gut feelings? Yeah. I think that as a review writer, critical analysis, as a writer in general, it doesn't even have to be reviews, but critical analysis is something that I value, um, you know, just in thought and in presentation of ideas. But at the same time, when I sit down and play a game, I'm doing it for fun. So I can understand gut feeling reviews. Now, I, I don't use them to inform pur- purchasing practices. And I don't I wouldn't say, hey, go read this review if you want to know about the game. But I think somebody is validated in saying, I played this game. I didn't like it. And maybe they don't have an in-depth understanding of mechanically why they didn't like it or have a really good critique but I don't think that everybody should have to think that way. I think that as content producers, you know, we're very formalized in our in what we're trying to do. So I think that we need to do that to substantiate claims and to really support ourselves as a legitimate review kind of service. But this is for fun when it comes down to it. And and people who have gut feeling reviews, I think that that's okay. There's something there that's that's valid. I think at least. But what what is a gut feel? I mean. Like I just said, I, I think you should substantiate whatever you say if you're going to write a review. So it was a gut feeling, I didn't like this game because I didn't have fun? Or should they go Maybe. into, I didn't like this game, I didn't have fun because it had to take that mechanic that really kind of pissed me off because somebody you know killed me when I didn't think I was going to get killed and I just didn't like the vibe of that. Is, uh, well, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm thinking. So like to say this game is take that and I didn't like it, that's not... 
like that's a personal preference. That's not because anything's mechanically wrong with the game. That's just you probably don't like take that games or whoever you're playing with. That probably wasn't good. But I see that as a valid review to put out there. As long as you can substantiate, I don't mind. As long as you can so, explain why you don't like that. Or why and I agree. But feeling. I guess the idea here would be, is the substantiation that you're providing, is the information you're providing, you know, critically valid and you know, really thought out, or is it more just emotion and feeling? And I, I see there being a place for both of them. I, mean, I think there is a place for both of them. I, for as far as like gut feelings, I think that's what the comment section in BGG is for. I mean, you, those are little tiny micro reviews. And if I'm checking out a game, I'll look at both ends of the spectrum. I will look at the people that are giving it the high ratings and look at the people that just really absolutely hated that. And that's a lot of. Like Dan was saying before, that's a lot of their just emotional reaction after playing the game, maybe one, maybe two times. And I I mean, that can inform an opinion just as much as someone who's in-depth gone through something. I mean, if someone plays a game and they are raging out about it, that tells me something. I completely agree. I usually read page one of the comments and then I scroll to page whatever the last page is and read those. So you're usually getting your tens, nines, and eights. And then your ones, twos, and threes. And I look at both sides of the spectrum because I want to see, like you said, those mini kind of feeling reviews. But by page 10, it's all quote, reply, quote, reply, quote, reply. And there's like a bunch of memes about saying people are dumb and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Or it's shut up and take my money over and over again. Yeah. Or I pre-ordered this. Yeah. So. Right. Regardless, I look for the ones, twos, and threes. They'll say the year they bought it. And where they bought it. Yes. I like that. Yes. <laughs> um, I was here. I remember this vividly. They memorialize <laughs> it. That's exactly. fine. You can do that. So I guess that kind of gives everyone a background, a lengthy background on us in general in terms of what we look for in reviews. Now, I also want to look into just some interesting discussion topics. And this one, the first one we're going to talk about is kind of what this whole discussion was born out of. And that's just the question, are reviewers too nice? What do you think, Dan? Um, I think I don't, I don't even want to say reviewer. I think I think our hobby community in general is very nice, very supportive of what everyone's trying to do. This isn't a huge business. I mean, it's it's a big business, but when you get down to it, a lot of games that we're reviewing are passion projects, and people are doing this for fun. This isn't their main source of income. This is just something they do on the side because they love making and playing games. And I think people understand that and they kind of have that, they have empathy for that in a way. So especially on the review side of things, when somebody sends you a Kickstarter that may have spent two, three years of their life working on and you don't like it, it's 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 gut-wrenching in a way to criticize it. But at the same time, as, as Matt says, as content producers, you have to be objective, as objective as possible and communicate both the good and the bad. But I think... I don't think just reviewers are nice. I really do believe that this community as a whole, and this kind of touches again when you were talking about, um, you know, charity efforts. I think everyone in general is very supportive and very, um, very nice uh, to everyone. I don't. I don't think you get many people that are just, except on the forums. Sometimes on the BGG forums, you do get those people that are just trolling, and that. But that's you know that's any forum you'll you're going have that to. Anywhere. Yeah, you're going to find that anywhere, and those people annoy me and I just skip over it and I don't even give them the time of day. But I think, I think as a whole, this community is very supportive and very kind. So I guess my counter would be, 
is that appropriate when you're a reviewer? I do agree that the community is very supportive, and that's one of the best things about board gaming. It's one of my favorite things is the social kind of harmony. But is that appropriate when people are relying on these reviews for different reasons? I kind of think it, it's almost a reason that board gaming does not have a mainstream media in a way. I mean, when you look at board game media, it's just people like you and I just doing mm-hmm. this on the side because we like to talk about games and we just so happen to have some time to write and take pictures, etc. You don't see, you know, the Wall Street Journal isn't doing uh, objective yeah. reviews on board gaming. And, that, and that, that's, you know, that's twofold. That's because the, the hobby is, is growing, but it's not huge yet, you know, compared to, for instance, video games, where I think you have a lot of professional media attached to that uh, community. I don't think we have that yet in board games. So I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that the mentality is there. Um, that's how I would answer that. I worry about being too nice sometimes because, I, like Dan said, I worry about it being someone's baby. And, and just even dabbling in design like I am now, I know how many hours I've put into it. I know how, many, how much thought I've put into it. And it's got to be devastating to put all of that together, find a publisher, get a game published, put it out there, and, and have that negative feedback come back you're gonna have it and you gotta have a thick skin but I kind of do always have that in the back of my mind I'm a teacher so whenever I'm giving feedback to my kids I try to sandwich it up with some compliments so I think I do that in my reviews too I'm always looking for the good but I will point out the bad and I think a lot of reviewers try to do it that way I think a lot of reviewers too are you know we don't get compensated most times for this, so sometimes our compensation is the the fact that we are sent games for review by publishers, Kickstarter previews, things like that. And a lot of people look at that like payment in a way and could be misconstrued as needing to provide a, quote, nicer review. And I think that's where, that's where this hobby kind of gets hung up a lot of times in that some people just are afraid to kind of lose that uh, pipeline with either an established publisher or whatever. Um, not saying everyone's, and I don't, you know, I don't have any specific examples of this. I'm just thinking from my own standpoint. Like you said, I like to be as as positive as possible, but you also have to be able to point out the negatives. And we do a lot of Kickstarter previews, and sometimes those games, I think people are just caught on the hype train right now. Uh, trying to get games out because people know that Kickstarter's hot and things like that. And they may not have put in the effort and the, the playtesting to make the game as good as it could be. And then you get it to a group of us that are experienced gamers and we just tear through it. And I think a lot of that could be, that's a whole other discussion. But I think I think in general, the, the overall thing is that fear of losing that, like I said, that pipeline and that connection with the publisher. Um and I guess you could debate then, is the publisher, do they need to be a little bit more thick-skinned themselves? Um, but, you know. Well, and I don't know of any examples of where that's happened to anybody. You know, I know reviewers, and I, and no one's ever been like, yeah, I put out that negative review, and I haven't got a game from that publisher since. I don't know if that's an actual thing that happens or something that we're just overly suspicious of. I've heard stories. I've heard stories of, of publishers with thin skin. But, um, which I think that that's okay. I mean, so I'm not in it obviously for free games or anything like that. I just like talking about games. That's why I podcast. That's why I write. Um, 
So I'm not really looking to damage any kind of relationship with anybody. But at the same time, I feel like I'm overly optimistic at times. And when I review a game that I don't like, that doesn't mean that somebody else won't like it. And I don't want to be the guy who puts out the review and says, this game is trash. And somebody who would really like it passes up on it because of that. I don't want to be misinforming people because my opinion is not law in this town. So for me to not like a game does not mean that other people would. And I think that that I naturally kind of soften things um, when I review and I'm not quite as hard hitting as some other reviewers out there. Sure. Well, what I'll usually do if I don't like a game is I'll put out my thoughts on who I think will. Yeah, or compare some games, for instance. Like, if you're a fan of X, you may like this game. I personally don't, but I could see where you would like it for this reason. You know what I mean? I think that's fair. I think that I think that's important, too, because, I mean, I reviewed games, and I don't want to turn down games just because they're in a genre that is not to my liking all the time. For example, I am not a huge fan of abstract games, but there are some that I really, really enjoy. So I don't want to say, oh, this is an abstract game. I'm not even going to try it because I might give it a negative review. Instead, I will try it, say at the outset, oh, by the way, I'm not really a huge fan of abstract games, but here's what I thought about this. Yeah. Instead. Yeah. And I mean, that, that touches on an important kind of conversation that's worth having in this hobby about, you know, what kind of games should you be reviewing? Um, Should you only be reviewing games that you like or should you be reviewing games of all kinds? And and I think that that goes for both in mechanics and also just in general, like fun factor. So even if it's a game that like you don't like dexterity games, but you know that you'll probably have some fun with it. Should you only be reviewing games that you're ready to give high marks of, or should you be balancing yourself by reviewing all kinds of games, no matter how good or bad? I think that's why reviewers get the rap of being too nice, because you're taking all this time to create a review, and it's a labor of love, but it still takes a good chunk of time. You're not going, if you know you're going to hate something, you're probably not going to spend that time to review it. I completely agree with that. I was going to say the same thing. It's these reviews. I mean, yeah, they're only like two, three pages of text or 10 minutes of video, but they take a good amount of thought and time to, to write out and write out appropriately, in my opinion. And, you know, when you have a game that you don't like, it's that much harder to write about it than it is a game that you do like, because when you do like a game, it's you can gush about it. But when you don't like it, then you have to sit back and you have to do that critical analysis so that you can be as objective as possible to substantiate what you're saying because again these people have spent you know time and effort on these things and well i would counter you there you say you can gush about a game you like but you have to critically think about a game you don't like shouldn't you be doing it all around and i think it's important to have a repertoire right it's easier to say why i like a game than why i don't like a game sometimes i don't know sometimes i feel the hate i feel it i I think negative reviews need to be out there, and I think every reviewer should try to review a game that they don't like to to kind of inform people's um, opinions on their opinions, right? So if I don't tell you what I hate, then you might not know what kind of gamer I am, and it might not be so so helpful for you to read my reviews. Yeah, so widening the perspective from just, okay, I want information about this game, and getting into the idea of people's perception of me as a reviewer overall, you're saying that 
you know, having a well-rounded repertoire lets people get to know you as a person. And then that obviously helps them, you know, build trust in you as a reviewer. Right. It gives you some credibility to review some things. And I mean, we've all played games we di- we don't like. And I, I think it's important to to talk about that because people are, you know, consuming these reviews and videos and things. And I mean, if we're not telling them the, tr- you know, what's going on, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. I think that one of the reasons that it seems like it's harder to write a bad review is that we all want to be nice, at least in my perspective. You know, we're trying to be kind and considerate to these people's projects. And that's why it might seem harder. But I think that, like, in the comfort of my own home after I played a game, I have no problem saying that sucked or I did not like that. But then when when I sit down in front of my keyboard and I've got to write it, it's so much harder for me because I'm not in this to bash people and, and, you know, be mean. But at the same time, some reviews just call for, you know, kind of critical in the negative sense, critical analysis, like right. a critique. But Well, and it's easier to say something negative just off the cuff as a emotional reaction to a game. Uh, I've definitely had those experiences. Then it is to take that negative experience and analyze why it was negative and substantiate your claim that way. So, yeah. so taking a step back from all of this, I think that this is, you know, we're kind of going on and on because this is really where this discussion topic was born from was, was this idea. But there's some other interesting things that came from our pre discussion discussion. And that was, um, kind of looking at, uh, review practices. So the first thing that popped up was, is there value in reviewing older games? So we've done some reviews of games that have come out in the past that we really like and wanted to review or that we really felt kind of deserved a write up. Um, but you don't always see that some people are kind of always getting out what's new. And I think that that might be because that's how you get the most views and the most hits. And, um, is, is by reviewing what's new, but is there still value in reviewing older games? Uh, I, for me, it's I guess it comes down to your audience. Um, the new hotness is is going to be popular with everyone, I think. Everyone's looking for, you know, a Dead of Winter review or a Panamax review because, you know, these games either aren't out or were only released in limited quantities, and they really could drive... I mean, if you're looking for site traffic and stuff like that, I don't know what you're in this for, but... Um, Older games, I think it depends. I think they've run the gamut, to be honest with you. I think BGG, especially for experienced uh, board game industry, you know, players and you know, professionals, etc. You know, BGG has been around a long time and these reviews have been out there a long time. And a lot of people have either read them or, you know, made these informed decisions back when they were the new hotness, for instance. Or, you know, I know personally me writing a review for an old game is it's almost it's kind of I don't want to say a waste of my time but it's it's not the best use of it uh in my opinion because there have been so many reviews written on older games now I will caveat that by saying if it's a game that hasn't seen the light of day like it should or hasn't gotten the praise it I think it deserves I'm all for writing it but I think you kind of have to balance you know getting what your readership wants to see now versus what's already been written in the past. I can agree with that. I think 
think it's important for, especially, you know, every day there are new review sites, new bloggers, new reviewers. I think it's important to review older games to establish a little bit of credibility. If you're, you know, review some of the games that are in your collection, uh, you might not be able to go out and get the new hotness. I think that's okay uh, to review some old games to just show where you stand and, and, you know, that you can write and that your content is enjoyable and then, you know, like you said, just getting some of those games that don't really get enough credit. Or maybe, you know, our our hobby is so geared toward the new hotness. Some of these games get lost in the shuffle and get forgotten. Um, and, and there are new people joining the hobby all the time. It's important that they know what's out there. Yeah. Yeah. So at the same time, uh, talking about review practices a little bit more, how many times do you think a game should be played before being reviewed? And this is probably a hotly contested thing out there, but, you know, what are your guys' opinions on how many times a game should be played? At least, for me, I think at least two or three times, at minimum. Uh, again, that all comes down to um, the complexity and the length of play. I think for some of these games, you know, a game like Twilight Imperium, for instance, it's going to be hard. I mean, unless you're going to wait, you know, a couple of weeks to get in three, four plays of this, that's a game that, you know, is not going to be readily accessible to the table. But a filler game, for instance, you could knock out, you know, six, seven, eight games of that and get a good feel for the mechanics and what you do and don't like about it. Um, it's, it's funny because you hear some of these, like, bigger reviewers, and I'm not going to mention names, but they get so many things that I've heard that they don't even play a full game. They just, they go back to what Matt was saying. They get their gut feeling from, like, four or five turns, and then they move on to something else. Um, I, it's, I don't know. It's a hard line to walk, I think. But I think, I think personally, I don't really care. Well, again, I don't want to say I don't care. Because I think this comes back to knowing the people that are writing the reviews. I think that credibility, I know certain reviewers are going to take the time to play a game versus not play it. But no, I think, I think at least two to three minimum for me personally. Three is my magic number. I think three is just the right amount of time. I've definitely had games where I've played one time, had a negative opinion of it, and then after the second or third play, that's changed completely. So I think three gives you enough times to get a good picture of the game in case you get kind of like a bum play or you're with a group that's not enthusiastic that can really influence your opinion of the game. So to play with different players might be a good idea. Um one thing I learned when talking through some of the people at my um, game store about this was that some of them don't care about that at all. Um, they were referencing things like movie reviews or book reviews. Do you expect someone to read a book two times uh, before they review it? Probably not. That's a fair That's point. a good point. But I don't know. It, it does sound like a really good comparison, and I like that. But at the same time, I don't know that people get into books... Well, that's not fair to say. Books and movies for the replay. How can you aspect. read a book or watch a movie again right away that you just know it? Well, <laughs> well, and that's the question, I guess, is like. Well, games are meant to be enjoyed multiple yeah, times, and, so. And it's not to say that books and movies aren't, but I think that games have more of a focus on being played multiple times in quick succession, and then having right. that longevity. Whereas books and movies, you tend the trend tends to be just looking at that longevity. So over time, I can break this out every couple months or every year. Whereas a game, we're talking about this game is awesome. You should play it every week, kind of thing. But 
I don't I don't have a magic number. I guess that's the problem is what first pops into my head is like as many times as you can. You should play a game just before you review it, just play it and play it and play it. And now when you get into structured review schedules like we have where you know, we're trying to do review content at a certain rate, you can't always do that. Life happens and there's only so much time in the day, so you have to play at a certain number of times and then call it quits and write at some point. But I think this ties back into reviewing older games, is that when you go to review an older game, uh, you know, a classic like a Catan or a Carcassonne or something like that, that's a game that you've played 20, 40 times. That's not a review that you have to worry about at all. Did you miss anything? Um, so the more you play a game before you review it, review it, the better you can feel about this is my true opinion of this game. I've played it with different groups at different times of the day and week in different situations, and I feel good about my opinion of this game and my analysis. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think it's okay if you want to do reviews where you play a game one time and write a review on it. That's fine, but call it a first impression. Yeah. Yeah. Just give oh, give the background is. there. Sure. And as much as I, uh, I I bash on Euphoria, I I even said after the first play, I was like, didn't really like that, but I will play it again. And I, I got three plays of it in, and some things changed my mind, but overall, I still just, I didn't enjoy it as much as everyone else, and that was my opinion on it. Well, then you need a fourth play. Get out of here. I'm not playing it. <laughs> I, I gave bought it, it. I gave it. I gave it three plays. That's that's its due course for me. But I I think you need to play it multiple times, because some things... Um, just don't become evident until that second or third play, depending on the style of the game. Well, and for bigger games, I mean, there there's some maybe some depth of depth of strategy that you might not discover until you've played it two or three, four times. Well, that's some the emergence trick. and stuff. Yeah, that's the trick is that when you say something like a Twilight Imperium, that's a game that I almost think you should have more plays than average because that's such a monstrous game. There's so much to look at and to explore. Where but it contradicts itself because it takes eight hours to play. So it's like, I can't play this ten times before I review it, but maybe you should hold off that review to get in that number of plays because it's such a, a vast game, you know? So it's an interesting... There's an interesting dynamic there between size and depth of the game. It all comes and, back to, to what you're in this for as a reviewer. If you're just... If you're just Joe Schmo on... BGG and you're writing a review of Twilight Imperium because it's your favorite game and you've played it X amount of times, great. But if you're trying to put out, like Matt said, a schedule of content or you're trying to do this in a little more professional way, run a site, run a, a YouTube channel, things like that, sometimes you just have to cater to either the demands of your schedule and or you know life. I think that, that plays into it big time. But I think that that would speak to don't take on games that you can't do justice to. If you if you want to be a weekly review site, don't take on Twilight Imperium. No, no. Or no. take it on and, you know, buy the game in January and review it in August kind of thing. You know, right. don't say, hey, I just picked up Twilight Imperium. Let's put let's do a review next week. And that comes down to knowing knowing the reviewer, knowing what their likes, dislikes, and even what their review policy is. I know we just wrote one up recently for the site. Mm -hmm. Because there's certain games that we just don't, you know, miniatures games, RPGs. Those aren't things that we're going to review or take on for review. So you have to kind of draw the line and say, this is kind of where we want to be as reviewers, and then, and then go from there. Twilight Imperium would probably be one we wouldn't take on, only for 
and scheduling purposes. I mean, if FFG wants to give us I a mean, copy wanna, of Twilight Imperium. If they want to put it on a big big 15-wheeler or 16, 15-wheelers, that would be a wobbly 15 ride. 15-wheeler. The old 15-wheeler. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just tell them we'll have the review ready in a couple of years. Exactly. Yeah. By the time they come with Twilight Imperium 4. Yeah, we'll review 3rd edition when 4th edition Exactly. Hits. Then it'll be a retro review. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking and talking, and this may even deserve a part two down the way because this is such a this is there's a well here that we can uh, we have not nearly run dry. But I want to kind of end with the idea of what is the overall job of a reviewer. So we've talked about what we use reviews for and kind of what we think reviewers should be doing and why. So what do we think their goal is? And some of the ideas I had was you know is a reviewer meant to be a creator of hype? Are they hype machines? Are they supposed to be getting the news out there? Are they informants? Should they be accurate and concise and, you know, just there to inform people? Are they teachers? Are they kind of introductory experts? Should they be leading people to new games? Um, Or is it just, is it all of it? Is it none of it? You know, I'm just kind of interested in we as reviewers, what, what are we even here for? What's our job? I think it depends on your lens. I mean, I'm sure a lot of publishers... Yeah, you're welcome. Um, I'm I'm sure that publishers look at a lot of reviewers as a marketing machine. How to get their game out there to hundreds or thousands of people. Easily, easily. Yeah, no, I think... For for a small cost, too. And again, I I don't mean to beat the horse again. And I don't condone beating horses. Please don't take that as that. But, um... I think it's it's what you're in this for. If you're just writing and talking because you do it for free and fun like we do, that's awesome. But if you're actually trying to create, like for instance, you know, shut up and sit down, they they're a monetary kind of operation. Same with uh, the dice tower. Um, if that's your goal and people are paying you, I think again that gets into that fine line of what how your opinion should be interpreted. But I think sometimes when you're paying for previews and stuff, your job is to create that hype. In a way, because you need to, in, in essence, you're helping them to market and sell this game for whatever purpose, Kickstarter, published game, whatever. Um, but at the same time, you need to inform them. So it's, it's almost like a hybrid in a way. I think it just, I don't know. It depends on what you're doing. Yeah. Like, like Tiffany said, it's what's your lens? How are you going about this? And I wasn't, obviously, I don't think that this is a clear cut you know, one answer kind of question, but it is interesting to think about and it's good self-reflection for us and maybe some other reviewers out there or people who are interested in getting into reviews, you know, to take a look at where you stand, what you want to be, what you are right now. You know, this is good self-reflection that I think we can all benefit from in terms of taking a look at reviews, their impact on the hobby and kind of how things should be conducted. That was a lengthy discussion, but I think that there's a lot of good ideas in there. And, you know, this was nice even just for us as a, as a small group to, to get together and, and chat about. But as always, we're always looking for your opinions on this. So you can find us on social media or shoot us an email or find us on BGG um, in terms of this role of the reviewer discussion or anything else we talked about in this episode. So that's everything we have for episode five. Be sure to join us next week for episode six, where we'll be doing a review of Run, Fight, or Die. But Spooky. Lawnious. <laughs> All of us are like making it Halloween, and Tiffany goes, oh, Lawnious. <laughs> it's a little too sensual, Tiff. It's uh, how you get the listeners, boys. Yep, it's true. Sex appeal. That's why you're here. 
All right, everyone. <laughs> Thanks. We can all say bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See ya. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into this episode of the Podcast of Nonsensical Gamers. If you're enjoying the content or have comments and suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on social media or shoot us an email at podcasts at nonsensicalgamers.com. You can also support the show with iTunes reviews and hearts on board game links. As always, swing by nonsensicalgamers.com for up-to-date news, reviews, Kickstarter previews, and gaming-related blogs. Until next time.